Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Chris Bataille, Associate Researcher at the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations in Paris. Chris has a wide range of expertise, and today we'll talk with him about the potential for reducing and perhaps eliminating carbon dioxide emissions from steelmaking. Steel accounts for almost 10% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and Chris will help us understand how the industry currently works, which approaches and technologies can reduce emissions, and how policies can help drive innovation. Stay with us. Okay, uh, Chris Bataille from the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations with the French acronym IDRI. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Thanks, Chris. So um, today, as you know, we are going to be uh, talking about steelmaking and in particular options for reducing and potentially eliminating carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions from the steelmaking process. But before we do that, we always like to ask our guests, you know, how did you get interested in working on environmental issues? Uh, no, that's a good question, and uh, I sometimes wonder myself how that happened. Uh, I'm from the Canadian Pacific Northwest, and I've lived in British Columbia and the mountains of Alberta my entire life. Um, my my family has been from BC for well over a hundred years, and I spent much of my twenties uh, traveling around, climbing mountains throughout the world, uh, doing a lot of snorkeling and diving and swimming in various places. And one of the things that really struck me was I was seeing dramatic changes in the the landscapes I was seeing. So, you know, routes that were possible in the 1980s, I, you know, was having a hard time doing, and routes that I did in the 1990s are simply not possible today. Um, it, I did a lot of a lot of snorkeling up and down both coasts of Mexico, uh, and in the shallow Caribbean, I was seeing bleaching of cor- coral um, in in the warm shallow waters that I was not seeing in the western half. I was still seeing the brilliant colors in the deeper waters. And and as I went on to you know on my graduate studies and what have you, it occurred to me that a lot of what they've been telling about about climate change they, they, this was direct physical evidence, and it probably piled up and you know propelled me forward. Yeah, that's so interesting. We we actually have had a number of uh, guests who talk about sort of uh, rock climbing in particular and, and other kind of mountain sports um, that really brought them into the environmental uh, scene, or for lack of a better word. So that's really interesting. Um, so so let's move into our sort of substantive conversation now and talk about just for a few minutes kind of like the basics of steel making. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but to understand uh, you know how to reduce emissions from steel making, you sort of have to understand how how it basically works. Um, and I am far from an expert on this topic, but uh, my my basic understanding is that there are two kind of main processes for making steel today. One of them is called the blast furnace basic oxygen furnace method, and the other one uh, uses an electric arc furnace. Um, So first, please tell me if that's the right way of thinking about it. And then second, can you give us a basic overview for how these processes work? That is a that's very close, actually. Well done. <laughs> um, so the blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace, is the primary way that we make steel today. Um, when we dig iron ore, iron ore out of the ground, it comes with a lot of oxygen attached. That has to be removed before the iron will melt properly, and we can mix carbon in with it and chromium and zinc and other things so that it behaves like steel, the thing that we actually need. Um, and just as a sideline, the two the two materials 
materials that we use most in human civilization are concrete is number one and steel is the second. It's all around you. It's holding everything up and you've probably encountered it several times today. Uh, with the blast furnace basic oxygen furnace route, they use the, the the way they they get the oxygen off the iron ore is with coal. They pre-process high, very very high carbon coal. Um, so you get what's called coke. It's it's very very dark. And then they sort of almost gasify it and mix and mix it with with the iron uh, in a blast furnace. And what effectively happens is the carbon it preferentially attaches to the oxygen, removes it, and comes off as carbon dioxide and generates heat in this in the process process, helping everything melt, but that leaves you with that uh, liquid elemental iron that you need to mix with other things to, mi to make steel. Uh, the next phase, you know, there's all sort there's various processes where you've got to get the carbon levels just right. You mix in zinc, chromium, molybdenum, other things to get just the kind of steel that you want, but that's how most of the steel is made today. Um, and, you know, it, it's ubiquitous throughout our civilization. Um, countries that industrialized early um, have the sort of most steel already processed, built into buildings, vehicles, what have you. And what that means is that they, at the end of the life of those vehicles and those buildings, what have you, they can then go and recycle that steel. They can melt it down and reuse it for the next pass. Now, and th that melting most is mostly done in those electric fart furnaces that you that you describe. So they'll they'll uh, gather up scrap, they'll clean it off to the best to the to the highest extent possible, and then it passes into the electric arc furnace where it's melted down and then reprocessed into steel. Now. There's a big challenge here in that the way we tend to do scrap sorting today, we don't clean it. We don't. We're not careful enough with removing um, paint, other minerals, what have you, and very specifically copper. Um, in a car, there's several miles of electri electric wiring, um, as you can imagine, running from various components of the car. And if that copper stays in the car when it's scrapped, it can prevent that steel from being reused for thin sheet steel for making cars. So it becomes a lower quality steel that's only useful for lower end uses. So if we want to endlessly recycle that iron, the iron in that steel, we've got to be careful at the end of life of things to separate out the various components such that they can be recycled separately. But that, that's the point, about 70% of our steel today comes from blast furnace, basic oxygen furnaces, roughly 30% from electric arc furnaces. Fantastic, that's really helpful. So now that we have a very basic understanding of, of how steel is made and, you know, at least one of the major techniques for recycling it, can you give us a sense of how the carbon dioxide story comes into the equation? So you mentioned it already in the context of describing how blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace steel making works. Um, but can you sort of describe what the main sources of CO2 emissions are from each of these processes? And, and then maybe give us like a global 50,000 foot view and, and help us understand how much CO2 the steel production uh, industry actually creates globally. Ah, fair enough. Uh, so the vast majority of greenhouse gases from making steel is making primary steel with blast furnace basic oxygen furnaces, and it's because of the coal. Um, it's the, in the first phase when you use the coal to strip oxygen off the iron ore, and in the second phase when you're doing what's called the smelting, where you're melting it and mixing it with other elements. Um, now, and with electric arc furnaces, 
the greenhouse gas emissions depend on how you make the electricity. So if you're in a region where all the electricity is made with coal, that could be a really intense, uh, GHG intense way to make steel. If you're in a region that is mainly running off hydropower or nuclear uh, or even natural gas, natural gas is half the, the GHG emissions intensity of coal, you get a much lower intensity steel out of that. Um, yeah, so most of the those emissions are probably, but it, you know, the the estimates vary somewhere between seven and nine percent of all the emissions that come out of the energy supply and demand system globally. Okay, so right, obviously a really big, <laughs> a really big sector. If we, I imagine we can compare that to any number of nations around the world. Exactly. So let's talk now um, about opportunities for actually reducing emissions uh, from the sector. Um, what are, you know, I, there are probably lots and lots of answers to this question. Uh, so I hope you can sort of steer us to the, to the highlights. Um, but what are some of the major options that are available uh, for reducing and then potentially eliminating emissions uh, from, again, either of these two processes? Sure. Um, the first and foremost thing is to do more, better recycling. So with the recycling that we do, make sure copper doesn't get mixed in into the crushed vehicles and the material coming out of buildings. The more you do that, the more that iron becomes endlessly recyclable within our economy. And it means that less iron ore has to be processed with those GHG intense processes I mentioned before. Um, so better recycling. Uh, we don't need to use as much steel as we do do um, in vehicles and buildings. You can design vehicles and buildings and infrastructure such that you minimize the steel. You only use as much as you need to and that applies to concrete, that applies to other things that are GHG intense. So design matters. In the past we just didn't care about greenhouse gases and frankly concrete and steel were cheap. So we used a lot of concrete and steel to make things very strong, uh, very fire safe, very, very flood proof, what have you. But we don't necessarily need to use as much steel and cement as we do. Uh, yeah, so those two things. Now, then the question becomes, can we re actually reduce the GHG intensity of making primary steel? Starting with the electric arc furnaces, you've got to clean up the electricity. But that applies to all sectors of the economy. We need to completely decarbonize the electricity production system such that how buildings and homes and factories and everything that runs electricity can basically run GHG free. And that equally applies to the electric arc furnaces. Making primary steel though, and we're still going to need to make a lot of primary steel, there's about five or six different ways you can do that. Uh, there's a very controversial way where you actually take, you burn wood or f wood from biomass from forests and what have you, and you create what's called biocoal or biochar and use that as a substitute for the coal. Um, it works. It's been used in various places in the world, and it's how the iron and steel industry got going way back in the 16 and 1700s. But there's simply not, we, you know, we, we want our forest to remain standing. We want our forest to expand, to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere and what have you. And th there's just not enough biomass out there to run our entire steel system on, off biochar. Um, there's what's called carbon capture and storage, where we, we capture the emissions off the back end of a steel plant. Uh, we separate out the CO2 and then we push it underground. And that's, that's got a lot of potential, but it's actually quite energy intensive and technically difficult to separate small volumes of CO2 from the nitrogen in, in the air that surrounds us. 
there, there are technologies coming along where that change the blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace, and the coking process at the beginning and make them all one process. And, and then if you use just pure oxygen with that combined process, you get a pure CO2 stream that comes out of the back end that is actually quite feasible to capture, compress, and push underground. It's an existing oil and gas technology today, but the trick is you have to master that new smelting technology. And, and also, it's not going to work in places where you don't have the proper geology for pushing that CO2 a long way underground. Probably a more promising route is what's called direct reduced iron followed by an electric arc furnace. Now there actually is the 70% of steel comes from blast furnaces, roughly 30%, uh, call it 68% and then 28% from electric arc furnace. There's a small portion that comes from a technology called natural gas direct reduced iron furnaces. What happens with, it, with these is that either natural gas or coal is combined with water and it's used to create what's called a synthetic gas where there's a small amount of carbon monoxide in there but also a very large amount of hydrogen. And what the hydrogen does is it strips the oxygen off the iron ore and then the iron ore, the pelletized iron ore, goes into an electric arc furnace and then it gets processed like any other steel. Um, there, are, there are direct reduced iron uh, plants operating globally that are less than a third of the average emissions intensity of, of a basic oxygen furnace. Uh, and one of them is in Quebec in Canada and it runs off hydroelectricity and it's, it's literally generating about a quarter of your average blast furnace basic oxygen furnace. Now, the, a, Swedish uh, a team of Swedish companies are working on taking that DRI technology and making it fully hydrogen. So you don't start with natural gas or coal, but you actually you make hydrogen on purpose up front, use that as what's called the reductant, which removes the oxygen from the iron ore, and then it goes into an electric arc furnace. And they actually last year started work on a full-size plant in Sweden. Now, they were able to do this because they're very industrial organized, they're used to kind of working with one another, and they actually managed to link the iron ore mines in the north of Sweden with the steel company, with the community that where the steel company is, and the producers that use the steel. And their whole idea was that they want to be in the steel business forever and this is one that one way they could do this so this is a technology that's been kind of on the shelf talked about in academic journals for about 20 years but they decided that they want to go ahead with this so that technology has a lot of potential going forward into the future because there are electric arc furnaces all over the place that are doing recycling. Now, if you can, if you can set up a hydrogen-driven reduction plant at the front end, and this could be done in Ohio, this could be done in California, this could be done in China, this could be done in India, you could transform the steel industry gradually off that coal-based blast furnace basic oxygen furnace route onto a hydrogen DRI route. And it can do almost everything that the blast furnace basic oxygen oxygen furnace can do. Moving a little further into the future, there are a few companies working on a direct electrification route that doesn't need the hydrogen. One of them is based in, um, in Boston, it's called Boston Metals, and they want to di directly use electrolysis to directly remove the oxygen and smelt the iron at the same time. You can imagine this as being the iron making mu uh, method of uh, 2075 or 2100 onward. It's more efficient, it's more direct, but it uses a lot of electricity. So one of the nice things about 
the hydrogen DRI route is that if we have cheap electricity at night when windmills are spinning or you've got uh, nuclear plants or even coal plants that are producing too much electricity for us to use, they can make a lot of hydrogen and then that hydrogen can be used to process the steel. Um, those are that yeah those are the big ways that we're sort of looking at going forward for eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from steel that's so interesting the, both of those technologies are super interesting and um you know i'm sure we could spend uh, entire episodes talking about either one of them uh but one question that comes to mind and and understanding that they are at these very early stages maybe just at the pilot stage or at the lab stage do we know anything about sort of current costs and potential future costs for these technologies compared to uh, the, the blast furnace basic oxygen furnace method? No, that's, that's an excellent question. Uh, those cost estimates vary a lot, and they vary a lot mainly because of the cost of electricity. If you're if you're doing hydrogen direct reduced iron, um, you've got to make the hydrogen somehow. Um, if you're Say if your electricity is costing three to four cents, five cents per kilowatt hour, you're probably looking at steel that costs 40 to 50 percent more than blast furnace steel. If it's practically free electricity, it's probably down around 20 percent more. Now, where things kind of get, where things both get complicated and get interesting is that there are a huge fleet of basic blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace steel plants out there around the world. And, and especially a really large, efficient fleet in China where most of the world's steel is made today. Now, what are you, what are you going to do with those? You can't, it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to ask people to prematurely shut things down, what have you. But is, are there ways to retrofit that plant in, in a reasonably economic fashion? One of the things you can do is pre-charge the blast furnace with a large amount of scrap. And if you haven't got scrap, you, 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 you feed it with green pig iron. So you take the, one of those hydrogen reduction units that I was talking about, you, you use it to s remove the oxygen from iron ore, and then you take that, what's called pig iron or, hot, or briquetted iron, and you feed that into the blast furnace. So then it only needs to run on a minimum of coal uh, for, for heating uses. You can also pre-inject the blast furnace with a certain amount of, of hydrogen. Uh, there's a German company exp working on ways to mix coal and hydrogen together, and they think they can get up to 20, 30, maybe 40% hydrogen. Now, the thing is, though, is none of this is going to be cheap, um, and you get wildly differing cost estimates, and you're probably looking at between 40 and 100% more for the cost of steel coming out of one of these things. It, it would then be using an existing plant, and you're not a, disturbing an existing supply chain, what have you. Now, what's interesting about that is that that sort of 20, 40, up to 100% more for the steel producer is enough to put them out of business if they're competing with another steel producer just running on, on a coal-based BFBOF plant. However, if they can channel that green steel through to a consumer that's willing to pay for it, it would only add about half a percent to 2% to, to the cost of a car, and basically almost a negligible amount to the cost of a building. So the cost of green steel would be almost nothing to a consumer or a construction firm, but, an, but it's everything to the primary steel firm. So one of the things that myself and many other groups are working on, is there a way to directly link the suppliers and the consumers such that that green steel doesn't get lost in the general pool of steel and therefore get priced out of business? It goes straight through to somebody that it's worth it to, to, to pay the extra money for. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it, 
reminds me of you know efforts that I think we see in a lot of different areas of energy and environment where you know there's an interest in trying to see if there is um, sort of a private market that can be created for some of these environmental benefits that aren't being fully priced in the market. Exactly. Yeah, my colleague Alan Krupnik uh, recently released a paper on. Um, what's called green natural gas, right? So low methane natural gas uh, and trying to explore options for creating market uh, around that uh, energy source. Uh, I can't help but ask one very brief question. Uh, maybe it's a long answer, I don't know. Uh, but you mentioned the term pig iron, which I've come across a little bit in, in reading about this topic. Um, do you know where that term comes from? Why is it called pig iron? Uh, back about... Going back to Roman times, um, there'd be a blacksmith shop um, where the blacksmith would gather up used and worn out things made out of iron. So broken swords, plowshares, pots, what have you. And when they had enough of that stuff, they'd put it in a big pot and they'd get some charcoal and they'd heat it up really, really high to the melting point of iron. And then that iron would be poured out into in basically like a sand pit. Effectively, there'd be the pour would go in and there'd be almost like these legs and pre-made shapes around the, the center. Um, and it affected, they called it a pig effectively, because it looked like a mother pig suckling her babies. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm imagining Game of Thrones, right? And then sword Very much so. and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so one more kind of substantive question before we go into our final top of the stack question, which is, you know, again, a very broad question that I encourage you to answer however you think appropriate, um, which is, you know, how do you think about the role of policy and businesses uh, in trying to reduce emissions from this sector. You've mentioned a variety of technologies as well as you know maybe uh, non-technological approaches, being more efficient, more recycling, so on and so forth. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the policies that you think would be you know useful or, or that may already be underway in the world to help encourage the deployment of these technologies as well as increase recycling and so forth? No, absolutely. The heavy decarbonization of heavy industry is called hard to abate for a reason, and it's it's not really the technological solutions. It's about risk, and it's about risk and innovation for companies. Uh, it can take 10 years for them to experiment with a couple of different technologies. It can cost them billions. Um, this, this process, unless there's an external force feeding into driving it forward, providing funding, and what I'm thinking of here is national security, it's just really it's too expensive for a single firm to take on if there's no big profit in it. So currently today, there is no market for green steel. Like there's no one willing to pay 20, 40, 100% more for green steel. So why would ArcelorMittal steal? Why would Tata, why would Kobe get it? Why would they spend billions of their own money in their effort creating it when they, they're basically kind of mostly hanging on by their fingernails uh, most of the time with profit margins of two, three, five percent Like it keeps them in business, but it's, it's not enough to really splash out on the R&D. On the other hand, we have a big social incentive to decarbonize steelmaking and decarbonizing heavy industry in general. So one of the things we have to do is connect that social externality of needing to eliminate emissions through to the iron steel producers. How, how do we incentivize them to do this? And in a way that, you know, that's not wasteful and what have you. So, you know, right up front, R&D is very, R&D has always been sort of targeted as a place where we put social money to kind of bring the innovation 
innovation frontier to the point where it's worth it for firms to start experimenting with it and rest risking their private capital. But it goes beyond that. The, the most expensive phase of taking a heavy industry technology from R&D through to full commercialization is not the R&D. It's the part that comes after R&D. It's the early pilot plants. There's nowhere you can sell into. All it does is cost you money. It's a money pit. And then the true money pit shows up. It's when, when you have build your first full-scale plant and it takes you, you know, five to ten years. Um, and then you don't know if there's a market for the steel. It And it, it often they call that the valley of death. It's right. just it very often kills off technology. So one of the things we have to do is to provide lead markets. You know, we need green procurement by governments. We need we need to incentivize car makers like Tesla, Volvo, what have you, to say, you know, say for their premium brand electric vehicles, say they'll use whatever clean green steel they can buy that's usable for vehicle sheet steel, they'll pay that premium for it because they know they can charge it through their customers without affecting their, their market share or their profits. So if you build up enough of that demand, you hit the economies of scale that bring the cost down, that start making green steel competitive with that coal-based steel that I was talking about before. One of the magic things that starts to happen then, if you have a good measurement system for tagging tons of steel as it moves around the world, then carbon pricing and border carbon adjustments and standards can start to do their work of winnowing out markets for green steel products and starting to push out the coal-based steel, the coal-based parts of the market. That's so interesting. And and there are, right, all those different policy mechanisms, I'm sure, you know, again, we could do multiple podcast episodes, and we probably will over the years uh, on those different policy mechanisms to actually d- deploy or help, help incentivize the deployment of some of these technologies. So, Chris, this has been so interesting. I've learned so much uh, just over the last uh, 25 minutes or so. Um, let's move on now to uh, our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that's either directly or maybe just loosely related to the environment or energy that you think is really interesting. And I'll just start by pointing out a, um, a data point that I think is very interesting and, uh, and, and timely. It comes from the U.S. Energy Information Administration Today in Energy series. If you're an energy nerd, you probably all already follow this, but if you're not, uh, I, I'd encourage you to, to check it out. Um, it's an article that uh, was published on May 28th uh, that basically showed that U.S. renewable energy uh, surpassed total energy consumption from coal uh, in the U.S. in 2019. So that's a pretty historic landmark. It hasn't happened for over 130 years. And um, part of that is due to the rapid rise of wind and solar uh, in the electricity sector. Uh, but there's also lots of renewable energy that's consumed in other parts of the energy sector. Um, we use uh, biofuels, as you mentioned, uh, wood and other waste products in our industrial processes. Uh, we, of course, use biofuels in transportation, as most of our listeners will know. And then residential and commercial heating. We use a lot of wood in those sectors, and we use a lot of solar as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. So coal still outpaces renewables in the electricity sector, but across the entire energy system, uh, we now get more energy from renewables than we do for coal. So pretty interesting data point and one that I think is worth noting. Um, but now let me turn it over to you, Chris, and, and ask you to recommend something and tell us what the, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Uh, speaking directly to the point you just brought up there, I would say if you haven't read Marianne Mazzucato's The Entrepreneurial State, you probably should because there is 
sort of a persistent myth that the state is inefficient, it spends money badly, it doesn't do innovation, all sorts of things like that. But she very kind of carefully goes through and smashes up all the, all those um, all those myths. And specifically, both wind and solar are literally created technologies by co-investment private industry and the state. So, you know, PV comes from satellites and they, it was right. initially all military applications. To, it was, back in the beginning, they couldn't take up enough fuel with the satellite to keep it running. And it was either send up a small nuclear reactor or put the very first solar panels onto the satellite. And that was how P, that was PV's first killer application. And, and then it gradually built its market share from there. Um, wind very much the you know, it's, it's it's a created technology, a lot of state intervention, pushing the innovation frontier, working with firms. Um, the, the British today are getting bids for five, basically five euro cents per kilowatt hour for floating offshore wind, which is cheaper than natural gas. It's cheaper than coal, effectively. Yeah. And it's because they had this uh, applied program of working with their offshore wind turbine fir firms, looking at the parts of the supply chain that they couldn't do themselves, were too risky, and providing cash, you know, working together with them that was built out as co-IP and then once those things were built and mastered then the companies went back into a competitive mode so Marianne you know the the entrepreneurial state if you want to go more futuristic I highly re recommend uh, Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. It's another; she's another British researcher, and she's talking about where we'd like to, where do we want to go with the economy in the long run, uh, and she has a reconception of what you know, what is the purpose of economics? And she has this donut diagram where in the inside of the donut is minimal, sustainable water, clean air, electricity, and everything for everybody on Earth, and pushing out the diagram that way. And then there's like a thin area, an area of what we call sustainability on all those items. But then there's a point there where we start pushing beyond, and we're starting to break the planetary boundaries for those things. We're emitting too much CO2, nitrification of the, you know, too many fertilizers, nitrifying waterways toxins, what have you. What she's articulating is we can feed everybody. We can give good lives to everybody on this planet uh, within, the, within the, the capacities of our economic will, but we have to stay within those planetary boundaries. And it's, it's a very fun, very provocative read that might change how you think about economics. That's fascinating. It sounds like um, a nice compliment to a book that a couple of people have recommended previously on the podcast, which is The Wizard and the Prophet, uh, which sort of uh, gets at that same uh, potential tension uh, in identifying some potential solutions as well. Um, so, Chris, uh, thank you again so much for joining us today on Resources Radio, talking about steel and reducing emissions uh, from steel making. It's been so interesting. I've learned a ton. Uh, and We really appreciate you joining us. And thank you for the time. I greatly enjoyed this. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. 
Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.